add some compute power. It's cloud. But you know, like I said, I'm curious just how they're going to make money. They're you know they're they're like a, a Silicon Valley you know startup. They're VC backed and. So like, trying to be the Uber of gas. It, that's exactly what it is. And this, <clears> the app is nice. It uses G, it uses GPS. So before you, I mean, what I do is before I even get out of my car, I, just, I request the boost. Is, is what it's called. And it, so it knows right where your car is. Of course, it's, yeah. I, my car is registered with them. I, I provide you know you provide like the color and the make and the um, the license plate number. Mm-hmm. So they you know they make sure that you're, they're putting gas in the right car. But super easy. I mean, it's definitely is the Uber of gas. That's funny how that that became a uh, an actual. Business plan mantra, <laughs> or, or you know, business pitch. You know, so many companies were like, "Well, we're we're basically the Uber of this. We're the Uber of that." I'm the Uber of humans, bitch. <laughs> yeah, the Uberization, Uberization of the world. Uh, do we have any follow up, John? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, we have a review. If you want to get through oh, let's that, do that. Okay. I said I was going to let you read it. Are you prepared to do that? Let or? me see if I can find that. When did you send that to me? Uh, I think it came in yesterday. What, did you email it? I forwarded it. Do you want me to read it? No, I've got it. Okay. Although I don't see who it's from. Why don't I see that? It's oh, a, I do. It says, it Roaring? says Roaring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Roaring. This is from Roaring. From this Australia. Is, yeah, Australia. So another, I'll tell you what. I mean, Australia, that's, that's one of our, that's probably our number two country. Number two? Yeah. I, it, I don't know. I think England's number two, but I think Australia's got to be third. Yeah. It's up there. We have a lot of support from Australia. This is Roran, R-H-O-R-A-N. He says, uh, it's my first stop podcast for marketing BS-free opinions about Salesforce. If you are a developer or admin working on the platform, this is a must. These guys cut through the spin and are not afraid to t- taking Salesforce to task. And the side topic, especially craft beer, makes this uh, great entertainment as well as informative. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a nice uh, segue, isn't it? To craft beer. It is a nice segue. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, thanks for the review, Ron. We appreciate that. Well, I say that because I'm, I'm getting thirsty, and Jeremy promised me some beer today. And I will also say, if, if you like this podcast and you want to you know, help, if you want to give back in some small way, uh, giving us a review is a great way to do it. Or even just get, clicking the stars in iTunes or, or the podcast app, whatever it is. Because it helps people find... I, mean, I can tell when we get... Our, our traffic goes up on episodes where people, have, I think, have done more reviews. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we have spikes. For reviews and, and, and sharing on Twitter and things like that. I, yeah. So, I mean, the, all the medias. It, it all helps. So, if, again, if you want to, if you if you are so inclined to give back in any way whatsoever, reviews are good or just sharing it, retweeting our episodes that are, that are, um, our, what is it, our, our Twitter account tweets, you know, every time we have an episode. Mm-hmm. Our Facebook page needs some serious love. It's really sad, like to the point we should just shut it down. I think I think I think I like every episode that comes out, and that's yeah. pretty much the only person. Maybe Jay, Jay Williams. Well, I don't know that I, I've never been a fan of Facebook, so it's hard for me to kind of really get on board with Facebook and go, yeah, we're going to really promote on Facebook. Hey, you don't do Facebook, do you? I mean, you're just a, you're a lurker. I, I'm an occasional lurker just to see what's going on, but I really don't like being on it. I, I really don't. Even, I mean, I honestly think you don't even lurk that much on Facebook. No, it's like every once in a blue moon, I'll be bored or something. I'll be like, oh, let me go check. I go it. through. I go through phases with Facebook. Sometimes I just like today, I haven't looked at it at all, and I might. I don't know. But but when I do, I I've actually got to like. I don't even like looking at it during the day because if I look at it once, then it it triggers something in my brain, and I want to keep flipping back to it. I'm like, what what am I doing? 
And I'll that, that's good for them. That's that's the crack. Well, sometimes what I'll do is I'll go in the, my host file and I'll just block like things that I reflexively am going to like that. I'll just uh-huh. block them so I can't even get to them. Anyway, yeah. So the the segue was to that Roran mentioned craft beer. So I brought my latest creation. And why don't you uh, do a song and dance while I grab this? <laughs> Your latest creation. How about I tell a story while you do that? Because I, I have this weird thing. Oh, that's in a. Weird container. What'd you do? This is a this is a growler. That's you don't have to say who it's from, but it's just it's a one pint growler. Oh, that's I've never seen this. It's like a little baby growler. It's um, it's no, like it's a like tiny the, little baby growler, carry, man. That's cool, jar, right? Is that what that is? I don't know. It's it's freezing cold though. That's good. Well, is it good? What's the temperature this should be served at? This is probably too cold. Too cold. So it's gonna have to sit here, and I'm just gonna have to stare at it for. Oops, you just sorry. made a mess all, all over my desk. No, 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 sorry. I'm gonna have to like. Put on my hazmat and scrub the whole thing now. <laughs> All right, so so the weather's been changing on us, and um, I you know I I normally go to the gym in shorts and a shirt. Well, it's been getting really cold, and so I decided to augment my standard workout outfit with. <laughs> I see this. <laughs> well, I started wearing these uh these thermal tights. Ooh. <laughs> but, yeah. I, but I put my shorts over them. So I have the thermal like, tights and I have the shorts over them. Are these like yoga pants? Well, that, that's the point I'm trying to get at. So, you know, <laughs> I gotta see I've this. always railed against women in yoga pants. I'm like, why do they always wear yoga pants? Why is it everywhere you go? You see some mom in yoga pants. My wife included. Not always. She'll get mad at me for saying oh. that. But but she'll, she'll, she'll go to the grocery yeah. store in yoga pants. I'm like, what the hell? Come on, go put some clothes on. Well, that's your wife. But all the other railing against yoga pants, that's, <laughs> that's an ironic railing. <laughs> well, so, so I put them on. And I don't like tight things. Like tight jeans, I don't like. You know, anything tight around my legs, it just, I just can't do it. It bugs me. Mm. So I thought, I never wore these. I actually had them for a year. But it got cold enough. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to stick these on. Just to, I just don't want to freeze. And so I put them on, and I was amazed at how comfortable they were. I actually left them on longer than I should have. <laughs> I was just wearing them around. I was like, maybe this is why women wear yoga pants, because I don't, I don't know. I could move. I, I felt comfortable. My legs were warm. I was just like, this is pretty good. You like the way it hugs your thighs? I, I just never expected that, because I don't like, like tight jeans. I just can't stand those kind of things. So I always thought that something tight against me would, I would hate, but this was just comfortable, so... Mm. I, I feel like I've gained a window into the world of why women wear yoga pants all the time because they're just they're just comfortable. Well, so that was my vamping you know? story. All right, so this beer is a mm, it's it's a New England. Hold on, style. I really do have to clean up Jeremy's mess. One second. Yeah, you vamp while I do. It's that. a New England style IPA, which is this kind of newfangled. I think it's really a misnomer. I, I I don't even consider them IPAs because they I don't know. They bear very little resemblance. There's very low bitterness. They're hazy as heck. Um, but anyway, people call them New England IPA, so whatever. But this is a uh, this is actually came in at about clocks in at around eight percent. So it's in the double. So it's really more of a double IPA. And it's also double dry hopped. So it had two different dry hoppings, both of uh, both with Galaxy. Well, there was a little bit of Columbus, Columbus, and ninety percent Galaxy. So the first thing I will say is lift this. To the vicinity of your nose and just th- smell. It smells like an IPA. Yeah, well, it's just like super aromatic, right? But it, it it really is cloudy. Oh yeah, it's hazy. This is this is these this is the style of the New England IPA. It's uh I don't know exactly what causes the haze, but I think it's a combination of massive amounts of hop oils and the adjunct. So this this recipe, the adjunct I used was uh, wheat, but 
I've done them before, mainly with oats, flaked oats. But, uh, did wheat instead of this. This one is kind of a take on, I would say, on the, on one a typical Trillium uh, double dry hop beer, if anyone's ever had a Trillium. I know, I know some people have. It's 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 weird. <clears throat> I mean, it's good, but it's it's um, it's weird in that you you get that kind of initial hop that you expect from an IPA, but instead of bitterness, you get a citrus. So, the 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 thing that people are going for with this with these beers typically is what is juicy. Yeah, people call this juicy IPAs. Do you think this fits the bill? It's pretty juicy. Well, if in juicy they mean citrusy, yes. Yeah, someone someone said this is just like orange juice almost. It, it, yeah, but the <laughs> word juicy, it's like because you refer to things juicy like you know a juicy tender of meat. You know, it's filled with juices. This no, this, this, juicy as in like you know fruit juice, orange juice, citrus juice, whatever. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, it's it's and you made this one, right? Oh yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, if that's the profile, then I think you hit it spot on because you, you you do get that hoppiness on the smell. You do get the the citrus on the nose as well, and then tasting it, it's the same thing. In fact, I almost. It's almost like orange juice. Yeah, this beer got probably the highest marks from from my the people that I usually share my beer with of, of any beer that I've made. Oh, I forgot to I think I really mention that one at your party. Jeremy knows some. <laughs> Jeremy knows people, and those people bring good beers. So it yeah. wasn't just it wasn't just the uh, the the huge uh, prime rib that I got to partake in. I got to partake in some really nice beers, too, yeah. that I never would have had access to. There was good wine, too. I don't know if you had any of that. But. No, I did. I did have some of that, too. Yeah, no, those beers, you just you really just kind of can't get them. Ah, uh, the, the perks of being Jeremy's friend. So, yeah. All right. Um, follow-up. Any follow-up, John? Uh, so, last week, I, I think it was last week. Was it last week or a few episodes? Either way, we were talking about Jira, and I it's, we had gotten to the subject somehow, I was talking about, you know, my experience with it and how difficult it was, mainly because I, at the time, I don't know if it was either at the time or I was really ill-informed when I built my integration. I think the stuff I did was way before some of these updates, but I just had a hard time working with the API. I couldn't get the data the way I wanted it. I, I had to use these kind of filter syntax in the API. Yeah, you said there was really no way to... It wasn't like a SQL syntax. Yeah. Well, apparently there is now, uh, or has been now for, for a number of years, called JD, JQL, I think, or JD... Yeah, JQL. I think JQL. Yeah. yeah, Jira so, query language. <laughs> so someone, someone on our Slack channel. Apparently, there's actually a note because I read it and it said not to be confused with Java query language. So apparently, there's a Java query language. Um, yeah, but so JPA has uh, JPA's is I believe it's called JPL. Let me see, let me look. I can't remember it now. It's been a while since I worked with JPA J- JPQL. I guess mm. is that what it is? Wow. But I think there is a JQL somewhere out there. Yeah, uh, JPA has two query interfaces. One of them is, yeah, I guess the JPQL, and then they have one that's um, like uh, it's like a criteria API. So you build like a this object graph of criterion, mm-hmm. and you or criteria, I guess, and you then pass it to the to a thing that. And what's cool about it is you can it allows you to dynamically build queries based on re, based on runtime things, but in a type safe way. Pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how, you know, we would talk about APIs ruling the world and, and all these kind of things, but it's really hard to kind of, once your system grows to a certain size and it has a certain amount of data, it's really hard to kind of get access to that in a realistic way without some kind of query language support. I mean, yeah. imagine Salesforce without SQL. Right. I mean, it would be painful. 
It'd be a lot of just downloading mass amounts of data or like I had to do with with Jira at the time, which was kind of like these, here's a field and here's a filter mechanism, but it wasn't really expressive. It wasn't like select all these fields and this and this and this. There was no expressive criteria. Yeah, that was Charlie Jonas. Oh, yeah. uh, Gave us that Thanks for that. And uh, Jira added JQL in 2009. So what is that? That was a long time ago, man. Oh, it should have existed when I did it. So what was I doing? You probably just didn't know about it. I or guess. maybe I was using. I, I did notice that there was some growth of that. So maybe at the time I was using it, just wasn't as expressive as it is today. I don't know. All I remember is that I had a difficult time getting the data I wanted at the time, and I ended up having to kind of basically pull down more information than I wanted, filter that through in my code in order to to get done what I needed to get done. Yeah. Uh, so I just sent you a link. Um, I, there's a thing if this loads that someone built called Salesforce Deploy Times. It's basically a, like a monitoring tool, and I don't know if you can, I don't know where it's getting its data from, but they monitor the different Salesforce pods. I assume if you got a access to a system on a pod, you could you could run a validation test. If you have access to a system on a pod, is that like a system on a chip? What are you talking about? What's a system on a pod? I don't know. An, an instance that's on a certain cluster pod. Oh, like an org. org. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. it's not an org. It, it's because you don't really care about the org itself. You care about like the NA1s, NA2s, those things, right? Uh, yeah, those are the pods. So that's yeah. Like, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, what this is, it's just saying, it's just basically saying how long the queue time is. So when you submit, because the problem has been, again, really in, uh, intermittent and varying issues with Salesforce performance from a developer's perspective. So if someone goes to deploy something or compile an Apex class or something and, and you know, on some pods, it's mm-hmm. great. I mean, great, probably as good as it can be considering that we're, you know, compiling over the internet, which is a questionable thing to do to begin with, but that's that's the life we live. Uh, you know, best case scenario, you're looking at a few seconds. Um, worst case scenario, I mean, you can have things that sit for minutes in a, in a queue before it even, it's not that it takes minutes to compile it. It takes minutes just to get to the front of the queue so that whatever compiles or deploys these things you know, will start working on your job. Um, in particular, I think NA35 has had some major issues. In fact, there is, um, if you're on the success community, uh, there is, uh, well, there's an idea for it, actually. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not an idea. There's an issue. Let me read this. Uh, intermittent slowness observed on NA35 instance during deployments. Uh, and I guess... I'm not sure if this is what Salesforce is saying or what, but they're saying the current, I guess this is Salesforce's answer. The current architecture uses a queuing framework for all deployment requests. And I feel like this is actually pretty good information, so I'm going to read this. This is a reflection of the fact that the deployment was built to support packaging change sets and the Ant tool, uh, which are release management use cases that are typically larger deployments. Dev tooling, like IDEs, uh, use cases have been supported by this same framework. Although we've run into some similar issues in the past, they have not been as consistent as they have been in the past two releases. These small, I mean, consistently bad, consistent problems. Um, these smaller deploys have started to suffer due to the increased sophistication of customers' development processes. Simply put, we have seen a lot of continuous integration development. This is a great sign for our platform, except for the fact that we are responding to the extra load we are seeing. And this is an example of, I'll put myself in this, in this group, customers really pushing Salesforce. Like, yeah. hey, you told us to build shit on your platform. Now we're trying to build it on your platform, and it sucks, and it's slow, and, you know, the tools are not good. 
you know. But I mean, they're being honest about it. They're being honest in the, with the um, fact that that you know the the platform just wasn't designed for that. Depends on who you ask, because. Well, yeah, I mean, if you have Benioff and... Yeah, and, I mean, the greatest metadata deployment platform, <laughs> you know, that's... But he's doing his job. He's selling the platform. That's what he needs to say. But, well, he's not the only one doing that, though. Uh, I know. No. And so, okay, so this person says, that said, we are working on a, a few things uh, targeting smaller deployments. We have finished a costing engine this release, and we have added a few new queues. And this is, like, this is a new message, so this is fresh information. This will allow us to target the smaller deployments and have them on their own queue. The fair usage, fair usage. Again, this is the cable modem model of enterprise uh, computing. You're sharing this thing with everybody. Yeah. And Salesforce is, I mean, I just, just the other day, who was it? Someone, I think it was an interview with um, Parker Harris, or maybe it was the, who's the journalist that, you know, switched to be a Salesforce coffee? Guy? Coffee. coffee. Um, I was talking about how Salesforce runs an almost embarrassing number of customers on an embarrassingly small amount of computers. <laughs> And it's like, they're, they're being cheap. It's like, come on. Are they being cheap? Well, or, let, me, let me keep... Oh, let, let's me, talk about the, 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 the numbers. I mean, are they being cheap? We're talking about trying to b- become profitable, and they haven't been able to do that. But look at what they're spending money on, John. They're not spending money on operations. They're spending money on, on giant parties in San Francisco and, and all over the world, really. But the, Which I, I, think, I think at one point, Dreamforce was a big win for them. Now I, I feel like the, the diminishing returns have, have kind of hit a peak. And they're turning the other way, and in that, I don't know that you've got to keep. The, okay, they've already had the problem of they were growing at thirty five percent. Now they're only growing at twenty five percent. There's a lot of talk about that. You got to keep pushing, which means. But here's more, the thing: more, about, more parties, more yeah, more but, salespeople, more stakes. Well, I mean, they are. They've kind of spread it out. They have all these, you know, world tours and all these kind of things where they're just kind of spreading that kind of marketing out. However, when it comes to Dreamforce, I mean, who's? It's hard to get in there. I mean, Salesforce does yeah. its best to block and reserve space for, for customers that are coming in. But, I mean, all the admins and developers and Salesforce, you know, community, they're, they're trying to book hotels right now. We can't forget the, the poop boat, right? <laughs> they're trying to book <laughs> hotels right now. They're trying to find yeah. their spot because otherwise they're not going to get in. And to me, that's just a sign from God that, like, maybe I shouldn't go to that. Like, if, if something <laughs> is that hard to get into, if something's pushing back that hard, then... I'm not you, gonna go. You know, tangent. I, I hate the the phrase "sign from God." It's like, does God really care about this conference in San Francisco? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, maybe so. I don't think so. All right, let me continue. The fair usage system governs our queuing policy. Will only degrade large deployments, which are much fewer than the smaller tooling deployments. So, if you submit a large deployment job, Salesforce is like, oh, you're trying to deploy a bunch of stuff. You probably already expect this to take a long time. So we're going to we're going to degrade you. Literally, that's what oh, they're calling it. Yeah, that hurts. Well, I, I would rather it do that than degrade my little Apex compilers compile. You know, as I'm developing and and trying to save a static resource, trying to save a Visual Force page, refreshing to see. You know, to to make you know incremental minor tweaks to CSS and things like that. You don't you don't want it to yeah, degrade that, those. I mean, that's that's kind of an that's an important distinction to understand, isn't it? Because every save is technically a deployment. With the caveat that the tooling API kind of changed this, yeah, but I mean historically, and and even the even the tooling API kind of has to run within that mode. I mean, it's technically taking code from one place and moving it into this other place and compiling it. It it may not have to run the tests from that perspective, but it's still having to kind of fire up the kind of same mechanisms to do it. It's a deployment. Some of them, and and I don't know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know the, all the details of of what happens. 
under the hood here, but the tooling API goes through a different door than the metadata API does. And the tooling Agreed. API also only supports deploying certain things and certain numbers of things. So if you're if you're talking about deploying more than like some classes or some pages or something like that, then in fact, if you can look at if you look at the traffic that these tools like uh, Illuminate Cloud gen- generate, it'll have to it'll it'll use tooling API for those simple cases or where you're doing a, a couple of things of the same type. But as soon as you, I believe, as soon as you have to do, I don't remember the API, but I, I think that's something like the tooling API. If you want to do multiple things, or if you want to do a thing that's not supported by tooling API, then you, that's when you have to switch over and go through the metadata API. And it does the that. API it does that automatically. Like a, is metadata API is a superset, basically of, a, or it's better probably more appropriate to say the tooling API is a subset of the metadata API in terms of what things it supports. But is Illuminate Cloud doing that automatically, or automatically. is that something you have to do automatically? Oh, yeah, automatically. So it's a smart cloud. It's smart. Yeah. Oh no, no, no! It's an no. Illuminated cloud. No, 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 no. It's an Einstein cloud. Oh, he can go. call it Einstein now. Because <laughs> it's smart. Yeah. They already have an Einstein cloud. <laughs> Einstein IDE. Um, okay. So there are good things coming, but you won't see the results of this work until the spring slash summer time frame. In the meantime, please keep the dialogue open and continue to submit the cases so that we have a good understanding of the overall fact, effect. Um, that was off an idea or an no, issue? No, this is an issue, a okay. known issue, which... Again, I would love to know how I can submit things to that. Well, I, I just want to say kudos to, to whoever put that from Salesforce out. I mean, well, that, that's, so that's a good piece I'll of link information, up this known response. issue, and I'll also link up the... There's a, a success group, a success community a group discussion about this that mm-hmm. I think led to this. So I'll link both those up. There's a workaround, though. That says, also, if you're building CI systems, please separate deployment from testing. When you include tests in the deploy, the overall deployment will take longer, which counts against the metadata service when it is evaluated for fair usage on an instance. Execute the deployment tests if possible, or sorry, execute the deployment without tests if possible, and then kick off the test through the tooling API. Well, I mean, I guess that, I guess they're talking about if you're just deploying to sandboxes. Which is weird because the problem here is NA35, which is production. You can't not run the tests with that exception of like the the pre pre the pre flight checking or whatever it's called you pre test no, you, you can but it still runs all the tests no yeah. or you oh no I know you can specify you which test you can specify but, which test which yeah. is kind of it's but you're still running tests now so well yeah, right you're still running so you're running your tests so I think this works you're not running all the tests so as long as your tests still pass you're fine. But it, it's one of those trade-offs. It's one of those things where, yeah, okay, I know my code's going to work, but I'm. you're basically saying my code's going to work. I don't care how it affects anyone else's code or the logic of the system. But in certain scenarios, that might be what you have to do. That might just to get it in. Because here, here's the fallacy with, with unit tests. It's all based on the data that's included in the test, the mocking that happens, the scaffolding that you, that you put up forth and say, okay, here's what the system data looks like now test my code against this. And that could very well be wrong. Or it could be written in a way that's that's improper and given the context, you know, of your test or, or your code that's executing. So, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I have a lot, kind of love-hate relationship with it. With what? I'm not... With oh. unit testing in general. Oh, okay. And, and, well, not so much unit testing, but what we call unit testing in the Salesforce world. I, I don't call it that. I know you, know you don't, but... they're not unit tests. But that's what they're, that's what they're called. That's the, that's the term we've all... Learned. No, we haven't. I refuse to use Salesforce's improper terminology. They're not unit tests. (laughs) 
Well, you know, you understand when I say unit tests in the Salesforce context of what I mean. You mean of what Salesforce minimum, says you that mean, means. You mean integration tests, but more likely these are basically functional tests, which is fine. Functional tests are very useful, arguably more useful than unit tests, but they're not unit tests. Uh, the thing I, you know, I think about with this is okay. This I'm glad they. I'm and and again, I mean, Salesforce has a lot of smart people that work there. I'm sure there are smart people that are working on these algorithms that 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 try to degrade. And I think that makes sense. Like someone submits a giant job that's going to take an hour anyway, and there's a few tooling API requests in behind it in line. Yeah, let those jump to the front. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you fill up two carts of crap and you get in line. And you get to the line at the same time some, some you know somebody with a Coke does. Of course, you let them get in front of you, right? They had just have a Coke. They just want to buy a Coke and leave. And you've got two carts full of stuff that's going to take you 30 minutes to check out. That's what this is. You're saying, hey, I've got all this stuff. Let me let you guys that only have like one or two things, you can get, you can get in front of me. But, so, the, but the problem is here is this is supposed to be cloud computing, right? People are paying top dollar. I mean, basically 1500 bucks a year per user to use this system, which should buy plenty of compute power. And and the and it boggles the mind that Salesforce doesn't have enough compute power to solve this problem. Yes, be smart about it. Yes, have some algorithms. But when it comes down to it and you're just bumping up against physics, add some compute power. It's cloud. This is cloud computing. Or at least it's supposed to be. That's what they told us it is. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 there really is no excuse for this. If they're having a problem, then call up Jeff Bezos because he will let you use plenty of... He's got more computers than, than you could possibly use. Yeah, he, he actually <laughs> has cloud computing. We, uh, we, this is a solvable problem. Pretty cheaply, too. I mean, I would argue that they could add enough compute to solve this problem and it wouldn't make a dent in Salesforce's I, numbers. I, I really... I mean, are you talking about setting up another data center? Are you just talking about adding more? No, just more... add some compute in, yeah. or whatever it is. I mean, into, into the into the pods that need it. See, I don't I don't think it's that simple. I, I well, I'm not, if, I'm not... if it's architected well, that's a this, that's the way this should be able to scale. They should be able to scale these pods up with more hardware as needed if it's architected correctly. Well, I think they can scale up the hardware, but but I think it's the domains, it's the the actual pods. So scaling up NA one and splitting it off into you know. NA1A and NA2, NA1B, you know, it's it's that kind of scaling. I think is, that's becoming an issue. Moving someone from one pod to another that, to scale. Well, how is that an issue? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a pod that can't perform, that's underperforming. I don't know. I'm just trying to offer some kind of possible reason why scaling might be a little bit more difficult than that than just adding more hardware, adding another hard drive, or adding another piece of memory. I'm or not adding saying it's not CPU. difficult, but the technology exists. This is this is not a, a problem that we don't know how to solve. True, but it's one of those things that kind of kind of domino effects. Okay, you add like, more hardware, and now you got to make sure that it's your set, your satellite where your backups go for, also has that hardware. John, for, every, have to these... for every one gigabyte of data storage they sell, they're making three grand on. Do you know how much hard drive space you can buy with three grand or six grand or whatever Salesforce charges for a gig of data? I mean, that's what I'm saying. They're getting plenty of money. The hardware is... the hard, Look at Salesforce's operating costs compared to everything else. It's minimal. And... and, and Listen, when a, when, when a user of Salesforce pays $1,500 a year to use Salesforce, they are, that costs Salesforce probably about $0.40 cents a month in actual hardware time and cost. So, wait, so, I mean, so what are you it's, saying? It's, it's minimal. So, they, so, so you're, you're saying that, that contractually they have the numbers. They have, they have enough in, 
they have enough in gap or whatever to kind of cover this cost of investing into the platform and investing into hardware and 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 reducing kind of and pulling some of that money out of marketing spend. I, I, they can pull it wherever they want to. I mean, they've got the cash in the bank. They've got a, cut, a billion or two dollars in cash. I mean, but I mean, they're not so a money focused problem. on growth. They're focused on growth. They're focused on from what used to be ten billion now to twenty billion in in half the time that it took them to get to ten billion. But don't you think if people see stories like this that might hurt Salesforce's growth, people that are looking about switching to Salesforce's platform might say, you know what, that sounds like that's not great. If there, if Salesforce has these performance operational problems, like why would we want to switch to that platform? I, I think, I think once upon a time, AWS doesn't have that problem. I think Heroku doesn't have that well, problem. I, I think it's a, it's a symptom of the technology getting to a point where it's saturated. the The idea of cloud has saturated beyond Salesforce. It's it's everything. There's there's freaking commercials on, well, Intel, Intel, and uh, uh, what's his name, Sheldon. What's his real name? I don't know. Anyway, he's doing these commercials on on Intel and how they've done so much for the cloud. Everything runs ninety percent of the cloud runs on Intel technology, and the whole commercial was cloud, 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 cloud. And like, and no one knows what the cloud is. They just know this is magic thing that works and computes and data, and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I, I don't know that people care. People hear cloud and they go, "Okay, that means it's taken care of for me. I just have to give you my credit card and I'll get this output." Well, that's what. That's what the promise is, and that's what you're buying. I mean, when you when you write a check and pay Salesforce for a year of of the service, like you expect that they're going to allocate enough hardware that people can do their jobs without waiting unnecessarily. Do you think it's a technology limitation of of multi tenancy versus you know single tenant? I don't know, but they told us that was the benefit. Hey, it's multi tenant. That's good. This is a good thing because it makes it cheaper because we're all sharing this thing. Maybe maybe they need to maybe they need to split their models. I mean, like WordPress. A, a lot of these uh, hosting companies will have a VM shared model where you can run WordPress on a shared shared model, meaning you're using the same compute as everyone else, or you can get a dedicated server. That was the Superpods. Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't think Superpods ever happened. No, I think it happened. I just don't think people were buying it because they. I don't think anyone ever bought one, which well, probably saved the Salesforce the trouble of trying to get one to work. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I don't know that anyone walks into Salesforce going, yeah, I'm going to customize the hell out of your platform. It's going to be unrecognizable, and that's what we're signing on to do. <laughs> I, I think it, it just kind of ends up that way. They hear about Salesforce. They hear about the customers, how you can customize it. They hear about how you can develop on it. And then it morphs into this thing, this huge, gigantic thing that no one expected. I don't know. Maybe Salesforce was like, yeah, well. Yeah, let's let's sign this license because we know you're going to build everything on it. Okay, but I don't know. Anyway, I, I this it just I don't understand why they're being so cheap about this. Now, that's just my perception. I mean, I there are enough computers. Yeah, it's not a problem. And and to your point, with this whole pods, I mean, they started. And it used to be just one pod, right? And it was actually, I think the original was like SSL, wasn't it? Remember that SSL.salesforce.com? You ever been, ever had a yeah. customer that was on that? <laughs> that was back when you had an option; you could just go non-SSL <laughs> if you wanted to, I guess. I guess. But yeah. then there was um, NA1, you know, and then uh, this actually was like a couple of the random ones um, before they really, really started that whole NA numbering scheme for North America. But anyway, obviously, that's another way to scale. They're basically sharding their customer base. Sharding. Sharding? Sharting or <laughs> no, sharding? Shard. Sharding. <laughs> Was that a Freudian slip? 
um, which is a scaling technique, right? And then, of course, within each pod, now you have scaling, right? Because you've got multiple customers with variable uh, load and everything, and you've got to. It'd be great if if within pods, they're you know they could scale, they could actually scale up when necessary, because it's not like a pod just sits there and with constant uh, constant load. It's going to be a varying load. You might have some times when you know a few of your biggest customers just happen to be, you know, doing massive data loads or you know, deployments and things like that. I mean, you've got to be able to scale up. I mean, if again, this this is the promise. This is this is why we pay Salesforce's not cheap price for their service because they're supposed to this is not supposed to be something I'm supposed to be worrying about. Right. And I, I think I think we see signs of that changing. I mean we we've heard rumors about Amazon and what it could be used for. It was originally kind of this IoT thing and now now there's these rumors that it might actually host the application. It might actually host Salesforce. When we talked about Lightning we talked about, okay, who can move to Lightning? And, and, and there was all these numbers being thrown around about percentages of customers who heavily customized Salesforce versus percentage of those that are just using, you know, native Salesforce, professional or, or you know, enterprise, but not really customizing it heavily. And they could easily move over. And I wonder if that's the problem we're having. See, you and I deal in the world, we'll call it the 1% world, of people who are pushing Salesforce to that limit. But yet they're, they're living on the same pod of of a bunch of people who aren't pushing it to the limit. But and yeah. so so they're monopolizing resources. I mean and, and I think that that comment that you posted kind of spoke to that in that you know, yes, this is supposed to be a shared environment, but we have, you know, these massive customers who happen to be on your pod that are monopolizing it because they're doing continuous integration every night. Well, they're <clears throat> they're just using it. I mean, I got. I mean, when when I have a client that you know they're paying Salesforce three or four hundred thousand dollars a year, there's and there's only two developers that work on this system. I mean, and it's still going to be slow for us. I mean, we're we're again we're paying. Pl- I mean, there's plenty of money for this. It's because here's the the reason I keep saying this because hardware is the small cost. I mean, by far Salesforce's biggest cost. We know this sales and marketing, but also even their engineering and operational, um, their payroll, is far bigger. I'm sure. Far bigger than any hardware numbers are. Well, I, mean, I, I guess the, the, cost I guess the, only, of, the cost of paying these guys to monitor these queues and try to come up with better better algorithm stuff. That's probably, I mean, and many times doing that is the is is the wrong approach because hardware nowadays is much cheaper than engineer time. So to the degree that you can throw some hardware at it, that might make more sense than trying to than paying some people to come up with better algorithms. Just depends. Mm-hmm. It's that's a trade off there that. More often, it seems like a like a throwing people at the problem type solution. No, where, you'd, you'd rather throw hardware at the problem. Well, exactly, but it's that if if you use that as an analogy, you know, the more people you have doesn't necessarily mean the better output. Well, it true. means more to worry yeah. about. So well, throwing hardware. hardware at it, that's more to worry about. And if you're spreading it around, at some point you're going to have some kind of failure, and it's not going to be able to recover because you've spread yourself so thin. Well, you're having to throw more compute at it because you're throwing more customers at it. As you add customers, you have to add capacity. Maybe that's the bigger issue. I mean, maybe they've grown so fast, and and even though it's been projected by by Mr. Benioff that you know it's grown faster than engineering could handle. Well, I mean, it just seems clear that they've definitely hit scaling problems in their technology. I agree. Yeah, and I, I guess and, the, when we're I brought, sitting here when I, speculating about we're spec. I mean, this this infra, this known issue. I'm glad they wrote this up. It's it's nice that they're they're. At least in generic terms, kind of talking about what they're doing, it's nice to see that and and to know that you know there are people that are working on this. Believe it or not, right? It's, sometimes it seems like there aren't that no one's working on this, but I, I know there are people working on this, and I'm sure they want to solve this problem. But they're probably 
dealing with this. They're probably working on it with the with the resources they have. Right. Um, so I, I have I want to piggyback off that topic and, and talk about unit testing because I actually have two things I want to ask you. Uh, one, when it comes to continuous integration or even just kind of system validation, uh, one idea I've seen and has been implemented for one of my customers is the concept of running a nightly test run of production. I do well. Okay, I'm, and uh, I do it. I do nightly things, but that it's can't, actually run tests. Yeah, it, it, this has nothing to do with continuous integration. What it has to do with is validating the system. Because what happens often enough is profiles change, workflow changes, process builder People change. People are changing stuff in production. And they're changing it in production. Yeah. Or they're changing it but not running tests. And so there's no validation that that what they implemented, even if they did it in a sandbox and moved it to production, um, or you know, manually did it in production, I should say, th- th- versus the, deployment. People don't realize that this is the equivalent of, let's say you've built a, a big, you know, enterprise Java application that uh, runs a bank, right? And so there's all this you know, build process that, that does all the compiling and testing and all kinds of stuff and load and, and then puts it on different servers and does load testing and whatever. And then, you know, when you get a good build, you deploy that to production. And then uh, the next day, some, you know, some administrator uh, digs into your jar file that's in production on the server and starts some um, patching in classes, different classes and stuff. Like, that's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what people do in the Salesforce world. And, and, and you know... Because so, John Citizen developer. Point uh, and click. <laughs> so we're, we're basically just trying to mitigate our risk as developers by running the test for every night just to go, something happened yesterday and it it's causing these errors. Who changed something? Yep. It gives us a way to kind of proactively say, you changed something, it broke something. What did you do? Yeah. So well, we can fix it. And the good thing about running that, having a nightly test run like that is if you don't have something like that, often someone will break the, break the system in a way that could do something like corrupt data in an ongoing way. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't have test running every night, you may, it may be weeks before you know about it. So instead of having a few hours of corrupted data, now you've got weeks of corrupted data. Right. When you get some call from, you know, someone who the numbers of last month don't, add, you know, fail during some audit or something. That's However, what, that's what I'm saying. You know, but I mean, going back, going back to the last discussion we had with with you know the whole continuous integration and people doing things that we didn't expect them to do because now there's nightly builds going on of the entire system. <laughs> we're, we're now, now here's here's another use case where we're doing nightly test runs every night in production just to make sure everything's okay still. Yeah, but that's and, also and consuming resources, and it is. But that's stuff that you should do. I mean, it's just like saying, "Oh, you loaded some data." Well, of course it's going to slow. No, it shouldn't. I mean. I should be able to load data. It's an API there for loading data. I mean, I should be able to. I mean, these are just APIs that people yeah. are supposed to be using. <clears throat> and how many how many seats does this client have? Ouch! I don't, hundreds, I, hundreds of, of hundreds. Okay, so potentially even in four figures of license, right? right? So they pay enough money for this. They should be able to. You should be able to run a nightly job. <laughs> I think that's enough. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's a fair ask. That's a fair. That's an ask, John. That, that's, that's a that, fair ask. That is a fair ask. <laughs> For this client, definitely. It's, it's a very fair ask uh, just to be able to run tests every night. <laughs> All right, so the second part of my question, it's actually more of a story that I ran into in that um, this system is pretty complex. It's actually the same customer, by the way. Um, and I have to run... I I had to... We had so many things colliding. I had to add some code that ended up causing some SQL limits to happen. 
And what was it wasn't that anybody was doing anything in a loop or anything. It's just that so many things were hitting this object that it was fu- it, it had to fire queries to say, "Do I have to run?" No, okay, right. And something else would change something. It would fire it again and it would go, "Do I have to run?" No, okay. So I tossed in a governor, my own governor, that basically limited the number of times my code would run. And it broke my tests. Yeah, and that's dangerous. <clears throat> because what happened is, every when I set up my test, everything, I, I let, let's use this as an example. I set my governor limit to two. So my code can only run twice within a transaction. And I'm setting up my test. I'm creating my accounts, I'm creating my opportunities, I'm creating all the data I need to be there by the time my code actually needs to run and validate in my test. Mm-hmm. Well, which I wasn't thinking fourth wall or fourth dimension is that all of those things were triggering things and it was calling my code already. So by the time I got to run my test, it already hit the limit and it wasn't running. So, so my code was not validating because the conditions that needed to be there weren't there yet. And so my code just broke and I was like, I don't know why this is broken. So I'm going through things thinking my code is broken or something else is changing. I'm going to process builder. I'm going to workflow thinking something is changing the value until I realized, crap, it's my governor. I removed my governor and everything passed. I was like, damn it. Because yeah. <laughs> this is all static logic. This is, this is a, a static variable that's keeping track of everything within a transaction. And it's a counter. Yeah. But... Even though I was calling test.startTest, it doesn't reset that counter. Now, I could I could reset the counter manually and say, okay, set it to zero yeah. now because I'm done setting up my test. You, that's what you should However, it, it got me thinking, is it a valid scenario that someone's going to build all this data within a transaction? I have a very uh, similar problem that I've had before, which is <clears throat> uh, a trigger, a, 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 you know, a, a class, a set of classes that's used by a trigger. Um, they're used in a basically in an environment that uh, by the time this class actually runs, there's going to be a whole object graph of data. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you know, in order to test this code, you've got to have you know a, a, accounts in the system, contacts in the system, opportunities, cases, all kinds of custom objects. Right? It's a, it's a complex set of things that will exist when this when this trigger runs. Right? Now these are not things that you would ever insert all at once. You know, obviously. You know, your accounts are probably already created. You know, the accounts get created at some time, and then contacts get created, and then over time, opportunities get created, right? In a much natural way. But in a test, you you don't have this natural creation of records over time. You've got to create them all at once, right? So, right. in your test method that that creates your, you know, your heart, your your test fixture data, you're having to create all these things in one in the, in one transaction which would never happen in a production scenario, but for the test purposes, because the system has no data, you've got to create them all in one transaction, right? which causes me to hit limits before I can even finish creating all the data I need. Yep. So what I really would like to do is I don't want, I want to bypass all triggers. I think I actually just want to dump some data into the system. Like, don't, let me go into the back door. Like, almost if you go to the database and say, hey, run these insert statements real quick below any application code layer or anything. Like, no triggers run. That's what I need. I need to seed the database with this data. I don't want triggers to run, anything else. I just got to get data in the system. But you can't do that with Salesforce. Yeah, because you, you can't you so, can't technically mock the data. So... <laughs> you, you can... You can you can insert the data. <laughs> you can integrate the data. You can do, do an integration test, but you can't really 
virtually mocked. You can't do this with Salesforce. I, I can't get the data in the system in, right. the, in the test class. Um, one thing I was able to do, and there's, there's all kinds of things. I mean, I've got all kinds of uh, tricks for in a big system like that, um, reducing things from... Oh. From queries to unnecessary DML statements, all that kind of stuff. But um, one thing that I've had to do before is split my setup, just setting up all this fixture data, basically putting a, t- a test.start test in the middle of that. Really? Yeah, because when you call start test, you get a new set of limits. But you can't call it again. You can only call it once. No, I'm saying, and you s- I have to call it about halfway into my test setup oh. process, which, of course, and then run which, your code which, which and validate your, your code. Which ruins your ability to test on your actual system under test. It ruins your ability to even know how close you are to limits on that. Right. But at least I can get my data in. Yeah. Only in the cloud, folks. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you a fan of the idea of, of being able to run start test more than once within a block of code? Or well, do you think that's well, just kind of more of a, a requirement? I mean, think of the purpose of start test. It's so that you zero out any... All the performance counts and limit counts, and and then you run your you ex, you exercise your system under test, and as soon as that's done, you call stop test, so that you can measure the performance of the system under test and the limits of the system under test. So I don't see what the purpose of calling start test more than once would be. I, I think more so because it, well, I'm not advocating for it, but I, I th- there have been scenarios where it was a pain in the butt to to do the setup. I finally got this thing set up. Where I can actually run my code, it it's it's probably like ten layers deep of of object data, and I can now I can finally run my simple little piece of logic. But that logic has to happen ha, has to include a couple of scenarios, and within that, it's a chain of scenarios. It's you know maybe it's going to be this value, but they're just going to change it to this value, and then I need, I need to see the output of that. It almost seems like I I should be able to mock that, and then run these different scenarios in a sequence and say, okay, here's a start test. Stop it. Let me validate that. Okay, let me let me start another test, run it, and validate. It just seems like it would be simpler to read than to have 10 different methods. Even though I try to abstract the setup, it's not always that easy. Sometimes I have to create an actual setup object, internal object class that has all the references to the data that I created because I need I need pieces of information from different layers. So it almost would, would be like if, if I could just set it up once, within the same method so that I have access to all that data, I could run code, validate, run code, validate, run code, validate, versus having to create an internal well, that, object to kind of manage That run code, my... validate, the step that happens more than once, that theoretically would violate kind of some of the best practice rules on, on tests. Like any given test, and this is... I, I, this is this is something you do in normal software engineering. It it works different with Salesforce, but normally, really, any unit test method or test method should have basically one reason for failing. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And really, and, and and a way to test for that. This is this is kind of where you look for smoke. Um, is if your if you have more than one assertion in a test method, that's a sign that you're you're testing too many things in in a test method. I'm asserting all over the place. I'm too because I don't want my test to take eight hours to run. I'd rather than only take two hours or one hour if I can. So and that, I, that's kind of part yeah. of it is the time it takes to, to set it's, all that up. It's firing a bunch of stuff, and and it's got to do that you know ten different times because all all my different scenarios. I, I feel like like my need to to run start test more than once 
is mainly a symptom of the fact that... I don't see why that gets you that. I still am not following why you would do that. Oh, just because you want to be able to run multiple cycles of testing in one test method. Right. Oh, yeah. So if it's, if it's a process chain, you know, where maybe just I'm changing the stage of something and I want to see the output, it, it just would be so much simpler because, because of the way Salesforce works and the limits around it and the time it takes to run it. You know, my setup may take 10 minutes to run. Now multiply that by every one of my scenarios I want to test... That could easily be an hour. Right. However, if I have the ability to run start test more than once, again, this is it's not a best practice. It's not something that I feel should exist, but I feel it has to exist because of the way Salesforce works and that I could test all those scenarios within one, within one method yeah. and only have to set up the data once. Or give me a way to set up, mock the data once and apply it to all these different methods. I, I don't know. Well, you, Some you can, kind of mechanism. You, you can have. You could have just an extra like private method in your test class that's no. simply for setting things up. Yeah, I do that. Okay, but every one of those methods runs on its own transaction. So every test method runs in its own transaction, which means that setup runs for each one of my test methods. Well, you should because so, that's also another test smell is reusing a test fixture should not be reused. But you have to. Uh, no, no, I mean in this, you can recreate it for each time you run a different test. But to like to say create your test fixture which is just data in memory and maybe in a database, whatever. Uh -huh. And then you run a test, I guess that data. But before clearing that out and recreating that, you're, then you run another test. So right, so you fall, you fall victim to the sequen a sequential uh, uh, failure mode, meaning you could, depending on the sequence you will run these tests in, you're going to get different results because each test, every time you run a test, can modify that data. And so you don't have a fresh harness. You want a fresh fixture for every test you run. Or else you're kind of in an unknown state. And I agree. The only, the only thing I'm trying to mitigate is the fact that it was it took so much time and pain to set up the scenario to begin with. Yeah. yeah. And and all of my scenarios require this base set of data to exist, which means every one of those scenarios is going to have to create all this data what's every the, time. What's the problem with that, though? The time it takes. Just time to run, execution time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, fa in fact, on that note, I mean, let, let's talk about bulkifying and testing bulk methods. I mean, that used to be a big thing when bulk when <laughs> triggers came out and bulk of bulkification was was there, you know, make sure you test for bulk transactions, you know. You know, run your code with 200 records and see make sure it still runs. With some of these bigger systems, I'm like, screw that. I'm yeah, not doing that. That really does take a long time. I I I've got either I have some kind of uh constant where I can change it. I can I I change it and say, "Okay, um in development, I'm going to run it with 200 records." Before I deploy, I need to remember to change that back down to one or ten or something yeah. reasonable because yep. it's just going to take forever. Yeah. Or it's going to start breaking because a bunch, you know, new code comes into the system and it can't handle the volume. Yeah. I, <clears throat> of course, that that's yet kind of a third major issue with developing on the Salesforce platform. I don't know why tests take so long to run because you know the thing is is once you have. Code deployed in the Salesforce in the Salesforce you know system platform whatever they call it. It it it. I mean, it's not. I, I'm not say it's great, but performance is, is okay. I mean, once it's loaded and running. Um, I mean, there are issues. I mean, look at uh, the App Exchange. I mean, it's been sluggish for. It's gotten better, but it's always been somewhat. Used to be worse, more sluggish, but it's pretty sluggish. I mean, anything that written on Visual Force, it's not the fastest technology in the world, right? But it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not ridiculously bad or anything. So I don't understand why executing tests is ridiculously slow. I don't understand that. What are they? It must have something to do with the fact that they've 
I, I think when they, because they're running against, you know, the actual database. So I think the first thing they do is they start a transaction, they delete all your data, and then your test code runs. And then once your test code done, is done, that transaction basically just rolls back, right? It doesn't get committed. So that so your, your data doesn't actually, that delete doesn't get like persisted to disk in any kind of permanent way or anything. Maybe that's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, for example, if, if, as long as you're doing use all data false, mm-hmm. I, I mean, so maybe, it's, maybe when that test starts to run, the first thing that the system has to do is de- do a delete of your data, any data that you're using, right, from the database. Again, it's not, it's not a committed transaction, so it's not like it commits and it's, it's only visible, right, because it's an ACID-compliant transaction. It's only within that transaction that things appear, that appear to be deleted. To the external world, every other transaction, all the data is still there. So maybe just that is that slow. That, that doesn't seem like a, like a viable option to do that. Well, that would definitely work. It would work, but that, that seems like a really lazy way of implementing. Because, I mean, once upon a time... Well, it, I don't know if it's lazy, but it definitely could be a slow-performing <laughs> way of doing it. And considering that how slowly tests run, I think maybe that, I think that's a potential reason why. No, I, there's, there's another reason in that they're kind of standing up a whole new database in the background. Well, we don't know that. Are they? Or are they... That seems safer they, than, than running and exec, executing a delete command. To just stand up a whole new database that that your test runs in, yeah. But I mean, here, they, they here, both they both sound very slow to me. Well, here <laughs> here's the other thing I think is affecting unit tests and the fact that, um, your code and all the tests can run in different contexts, different version contexts. So you may be your your new code's running on version thirty eight, but you have some old code running on version twelve or something. And so there might be some inefficiencies in in that context because yeah, it's having to run across the entire spectrum of versions. Yeah, and I don't know what that virtualization layer looks like. Like your code that's running through API 32, Visual Force 32, or you know, mm-hmm. your Apex is saved as version 32. I don't, you know, is that a performance hit to go through some layer that translates it to the, the system that's actually running currently in production? I gotta you think so. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like or what the performance hit of that. It's, it's a thing, though, that's for sure. And, you know, the funny thing about that is maybe that all sticks around because when you code something against an, uh, a version of an, of an API, and that version over time becomes like an old version of the API, I mean, mm-hmm. your code basically depends on the way that thing works. It's bugs and all, right? Right. There, so, there, there are a few changes so in the fixing, system that if are... They, if they fix a bug in a current version of the API, they kind of can't fix it in the previous version because that could break code. Like, your code depends on bugs working the way they work a lot of, in a lot of cases. I think there are some changes that are kind of global. They're, they're at the core level. And then there, there are definitely version changes that, that are supposed to kind of... Yeah. You know, they're not supposed to change the way it works. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. But this is the fun of a multi-tenant cloud architecture. We don't have a clip for that? Go to the cloud, they said. It makes it so easy, they said. It would be so painless, they said. <laughs> can, we, can we play my video? I, I feel like we're, we're, we're kind of segueing perfectly. I, I want you to play this video. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's not this the wiki. Hold on. I'm not done with my cloud thing. Did I die? No. Somehow you uploaded yourself to the cloud. How about this one? When I talk about cloud, like, I don't even think about SaaS. The cloud is kind of BS. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. What about data scientist? 
Yeah, that's a different topic. <laughs> All right, so so I have a have a. Are you going to play my video? Do you, do you send it to me? I, I okay. message it to you. All right. All right. Is, so is it going to have a pre-roll? I hope not. You might. It's it's YouTube, so it might have a commercial. So you might have to. Oh yeah, we have a, a recruiter here. I am the fastest coder around town. I program in Portuguese and Arabic. If you've got a new app, I'll deliver it to market faster than anyone. I'll scale it from 10 to 10,000 users in lightning speed. I don't know what this is yet, but this is the, the this is the kind of the hoop the the joke around the the hubris of uh, <laughs> of the overinflated ego developer. Oh, it gets better. Okay. My name is Marley. I am a DevOps engineer. Which the DevOps people will tell you doesn't exist. And, and like you don't do. And that, you can stop it there because it's <laughs> okay. just gonna. Uh, so it, it, this was a commercial that played. I was I was I was lounging on YouTube. I was just relaxing, trying to unwind from the day, and I'm playing my YouTube videos. And all of a sudden, this comes on, and I'm like, "What is this?" And she's, then she, and then and then she said, and she's saying all these things, and I'm like, "Oh my, she's like an awesome person. She can. She's the developer you want. She's like the." <gasps> Wow! <laughs> exactly. She's she's that one percent. She's that A. She's that A player. Jeremy's been talking about yeah. that you need to hire yeah. the 10x developer. And then she ruins it by going, "I'm a DevOps engineer." I'm like, <laughs> I didn't think DevOps was like a thing. It's like a so it's a process. It's a, a thing that describes this like overall encompassing thing, not a thing that someone does. This one person does. It probably won't surprise people to know that this is actually an ad from Dice, which is right. this job platform, which is inexorably tied to the recruiting world, which is completely full of crap, and they don't know one thing from another. And <laughs> Well, just, it made it seem like like if you want DevOps in your system, you need to hire this one really good person, and DevOps oh, yeah. will happen. Yeah. Do you do DevOps, John? I'm like, this is this has nothing to do with DevOps. Coding in Portuguese has nothing to do with DevOps. If you want to transform the way you innovate and innovate the way you transform, (laughs) then you you need to make sure you create a DevOps department in your company. (laughs) (laughs) Do do I get to come to work dressed like a superhero? Like she was like strapping on some like tight fitting clothes and everything. Yeah, I'm just not even going to comment on that either. Um, Don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Anyways, that was my my uh, video highlight. I, it just struck me. I was like, "Oh my god!" I, is this one of those, those OMG moments? One of those facepalm moments where I just kind of let, "Oh John. my god!" OMG! Oh my god, guys! <laughs> this is like totally. <laughs> I get a lot of practice with that voice because I use it to tease my daughter. <laughs> Don't do that. She'll start talking like that. No, she hates it. So, so or, the Oracle. Cloud world or Oracle world cloud or whatever was uh, this past week? Do you uh, this has sediment? I'm supposed to avoid, or I can pour the whole thing. No, you can pour the whole thing. Too late because I already poured yeah. the whole thing. No, there's no sediment. This is out of my keg. Oh, all right. How's it? How's it drinking? By the way, that's great. It needs. It's too cold for sure. It needs to warm up. Well, it's it's been warming up, yeah. so it's good. Juicy, huh? It is juicy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what, uh, so news, yeah, uh, I looked for some news on this Oracle thing. More of the same stuff. They are opening some more data centers. They're adding, uh, DC, uh, supposedly, like, right across the street from Amazon, because I think U.S., what do they call it, U.S. East Virginia or whatever, I think that's, I think it's, like, well, I guess that would be DC, I mean, it's, pro- it's probably right outside of DC in that whole Metroplex area. Uh, yeah, DC, London, and Turkey. They now have, like, um, uh, I think it looked like there was, like, 40 data centers all over the world. 
Oracle does? Yeah. Well, well, the, I mean, maybe that's another reason uh, Salesforce is pinging Amazon. It's trying to catch up to that because, I mean, Oracle's definitely got the cash to do this. They do. They have. That's one thing they have. And I mean, and I know you mentioned Salesforce does have cash, but at the same time, that, that's an expensive endeavor, endeavor to set up a whole new data center. I heard an interesting argument, actually. There's some wheels to grease there. Yeah. Um, but I heard an interesting argument that if, that is about Salesforce's ability to compete with some of these bigger, more established, and, and more profitable uh, players. And it's all around the potential to roll back some or, or reduce some of these like taxes that, that companies have to pay. Basically, it's basically income tax, I believe, when they repatriate their money from that's overseas. Mm-hmm. And if this becomes much less expensive to repatriate all this money that Apple and Oracle and all these companies have, maybe Amazon, I don't know. Certainly like IBM, though. Um, here are the other big players. Microsoft, that's that's a big mm-hmm. one. Then, uh, then they're going to be flooded with cash that they can then use to deploy domestically on some of these projects. So if Oracle all of a sudden gets flooded with a bunch more cash that they can use domestically, that could be a problem with Salesforce because Salesforce doesn't have a bunch of cash to bring back in. Right. Uh, Salesforce is still... It, which, I, which I think is part of the reason they didn't get a big bump during the whole Trump thing. Could be. It seemed like all the companies that were getting a bump had a significant global market or global presence where repat- repatriating that money could be, have an impact on on what they can do. Yeah. Which reminds me of the whole bump thing, the lack of it. <clears throat> I mean, have you seen Salesforce's stock recently? I think last week we looked at it and it was up. I mean, first trading session of the new year, it is up like 8%. I mean, they're up easily 10% on the year. And Are it, they it was, back to 80? It was from day one. No, it's like 76 or something, 75, 76. And, you know, I went back and looked at that chart again, This two, the past two years, how it's just been flat. Because we talked about that, how right. Salesforce finished the year just really just underperforming. I mean, just flat, if not worse, stock for the past two years now. Well, I mean, they're stable. It's just in, for a growth stock, it's not growing like it should be. It's, the, the trend should be yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. And definitely just under underperforming for sure. <clears throat> I think by all measures and opinions. And I don't know. They, they they manipulate the numbers quarterly so that they meet their numbers. I mean, they, they manipulate that gap. They yeah. They can publish their numbers. What they can't do is set their stock price. It's right. It's the right. It's the market that sets that. Um, but it, it reminded me of you know. There's all kinds of financial instruments. I mean, I've uh, talked to anyone who is a financial planner or people that that you know do a lot of investing. <clears throat> there's all kinds of things that that depend on. I for example, I got a friend who. He's got financial instruments, and I'm not sure which ones they are. It might be annuities of some sort. I can't remember. But basically, at the very end of the year, where the stock market closes at, that is that sets the number that they basically are going to... It's like a baseline that determines how much money they're going to make <clears throat> over the next year. And in a way, you want these numbers to come in as low as possible. <laughs> right? You want them yeah. to be low, but as but soon as the next year starts, that's when you're like, okay, fine, now. Now shoot up, right? Right. Um, and if you look at this chart of the past two years and include the first day of the trading year of 2017, it's like that's exactly what was happening. Somebody didn't. Somebody needed to make sure that Salesforce's stock stayed flat through the end of the year, <laughs> and it did. It's a, it was it ended it, it is, for two years in a row now. It's been low, and and day one trading trading day one of 2017. It it's like all that demand, all that pent up. Demand it shoots back up, but that doesn't make sense because their quarter isn't doesn't start. I'm not talking about Salesforce's quarter. Somebody had numbers riding on not Salesforce itself. Someone who has interests in Salesforce. Someone who's got 
options or puts or something. You know, they're long or they're short or whatever. And something expired December 31st at midnight. Huh. And and they just had to it had it had to stay low for that. That's some tinfoil hat well, stuff right there. You go look at that. You go look at the chart and you tell me that something didn't happen. I mean, it was it was set free day on the day one trading of 2017. Maybe, maybe something, maybe something just drew attention to Salesforce at that in December. Our numbers went up in December, so that's true. <laughs> um, maybe it's just a global thing. Did you see this note? Someone reco- someone suggested the idea of like creating a poll uh, for us to create like a good day, sir podcast poll I, I've, I've had that on my brain i have too um i've been looking wanna... at apps to try to do polling in slack and things like that i might have to pay for one because the free ones are kind of crappy they kind of rely on like emoji type things well, you know how you can oh you can vote something up and you get like that number counter on the emoji it kind of relies on that and i'm okay. not sure i like that there's other things that will integrate and actually poll well regardless of the mechanism like <clears throat> he, he had some who this is charlie jonas again Actually, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, same, I think so. That, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, there, there's a number of people that chimed in, chimed up that showed interest. But in he polling. says, you know, some example polls that he would find interesting would be work, like the type of work you do. Are you a consultant? Are you a you work for? A, are you an employee at a company? Whatever. Um, what OS do you use? What's your background? Like, are you a developer? If so, are you self-taught? Did you go to school for this? You have a CS degree, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, IDE of choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sales, uh, Salesforce, what do they call it? The force.com IDE? Is that what it's still called? Yeah. You know, eliminated Cloud, Avensmate, whatever. What if but, but I, I, I hadn't thought of any of those questions, but the ones I've always wondered is, um, like, do people like long episodes? Because we, I mean, we go so long. Now, I, know. I always feel bad. I I'm know. like, oh, we're just, I feel sorry for everyone who's having to listen to this. <laughs> Once it hits two hours, I don't even listen to it. I know. It's like, oh, I'm so done. <laughs> So I mean, I really feel like, gosh, we should have some more discipline. Like, should we should we stick to a one hour show or a thirty minute show? I mean, there's I all kinds of sometimes theories. Sometimes the magic about, happens when we're we're like, you know, you're being very generous to call it magic. Five fingers deep into a beer, and we're like, that's when the magic happens. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but now I wonder, like, what what size of episode or you know length of episode do people prefer? Do they do they like when we talk about you know beer do they like when we talk about programming do they like when we talk about admin stuff do we like they like when we talk about just general conspiracy crap or or just industry news like what do you know what do we what do they want to hear more of what what do people you know because i have no idea and i think it would be cool to find out yeah but at the same time do we want to know i don't know that's another question would it change us would would it change that's another question we can ask we can ask people should we want to know what you care about That's, so, that's called so, a meta so the, question. So the whole, the whole, fa- the, probably the most famous example of this is the iPhone and Steve Jobs. If he went out and polled the world and said, what do you want in a phone? We wouldn't have the phones we have today. Because it wasn't right. anything anyone considered no. as a possibility. No, no focus group would have ever put that together, which is so, I mean, it kill, I'm working on a project right now where they hired this company and they're focus grouping like the design and all kinds of stuff. I'm just like, and, and, the, and it's not that I'm completely against that type of thing. I mean, I actually think actual user involvement and input is hugely important. It's the way that these these firms that have been around for a while still do this. It's mm. a, it's a huge up. It's all up front, and so they're deliverable once they've done all these iterations of design and met with people. You know, done the one way mirror and heat maps and all that stuff. 
you know, that takes all this time and the, you know, you and the deliverables they get back, you get back are these is this giant design. It's like, okay, now go build this. Well, no. That's a horrible <laughs> way to build software. Don't we all know that now? Yeah. You have to give people working software. And you need to do it incrementally so that each step of the process informs the next step. You are throwing that all away when you do a big upfront design like that. Yeah. And it just kills me. All I can do is sit back and watch it because it's out of my control. I agree. So so the other the other half of the discussion in terms of polling is what do we do with the data? Just share it. I mean, it's just it's just a curiosity thing. I mean, I don't think we would If it's if it's curiosity, I'm fine with it. If it's some I, kind of dating monitoring operation that we can like do something with, I, I'm not interested. I don't know what but, you mean by that. I mean well, usually the, a poll exists to kind of, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess not. We, we talk about the Slack, uh, not Slack, um, Stack Exchange poll that happens. That's just information that's generally available. It's not like a Gartner poll where that stuff ends up behind a paywall. Yeah. I mean, if I, if, if we found out that like no one gives a crap about, you know, beer talk, then maybe, I don't know, maybe we won't, we'll just drink it. We won't talk about it as much. Or or people, if 95% of people hate long episodes, then okay, no. We won't do long episodes anymore. I don't know. Okay. But as, as far as the other stuff, like what we talk about, I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of just like talking about the things we like talking about. And if whoever likes them, will listen. But I, just, I don't know. I thought it would be interesting to get some sentiment analysis. Sentiment. All right, let's move on. Uh, okay. You are, you get, are you going to go or am I going to go? I was going to say, I, I had one. Just It's just a kind of a thing I saw in the news, which is Microsoft is buying this uh, Maluba M-A-L-U-U-B-A. I haven't heard of this. I mean, the only reason I took note of it is just because it's a an AI. It's an AI, you know, acquisition. And it's all around, uh, you know, nat- what do they call it? Natural language processing. Mm. Human language. But uh, the thing that kind of made a corollary to Salesforce is that uh, this article said as part of the plan, Microsoft is also getting a renowned AI expert, Yoshua Bengio, as an advisor. Um, this is a guy who already serves in, I guess, similar capacity at this Maluba company, but he's a computer science professor at University of Montreal, and I don't know, he's an advisor of all these other AI things. But mm. I'm like, and then I was thinking, this is Microsoft's Richard Socher. <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft's, you know, such such has been like, <sighs> burns me that Benioff got Socher. We got to get our own Socher over here. Yeah. <laughs> AI to rule the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was it. You can do yours now. Einstein. Einstein, Einstein, Einstein. Uh, so th- this actually might be an update. This might, might actually be considered follow-up. Um, so we, we talked a number of times about certifications and how you don't really get feedback, but apparently that you are going to get feedback now. Um, so... Apparently, I'm not sure if this is in in effect now. Let's see. Uh, it looks like this year it'll start taking effect. So when you take your certification exams, you will get kind of section level feedback on the results. So you'll get, you won't get like this answer was wrong. I don't think you'll get kind of you know your percentage right. Like you'll get a percentage. Okay. You might get some some feedback on what to work on in terms of area, uh, which I think is valuable. I mean, I, I certainly don't want the answers given back to me, but I would like to know what areas I need to work on so I can, I can focus my studying. It, it right. allows me to that's, say, okay, I've got that down. Now I got to work on this a little bit more. 
Yeah, it seemed ridiculous that you didn't get that feedback. Yeah, because then you have to go back and, and you end up questioning yourself. Did I really have that down or did I not have that down? So you end up focusing on the wrong areas and you potentially you could kind of, you know, screw yourself when it comes to, to restudying for the exam. Right. It's And a good portion of the time there's stress involved because usually the company you work for is paying for it. Yeah. And like I think I mentioned this before, but you know, it's it's pretty common for people to fail these tests the first time or even the second time, right? Um yeah, I mean, and don't don't fail it and go. Oh, I'm the worst person in the world. Everyone else has passed it. No, we we've all failed an exam or two. Right, and you can be. I mean, I've known people that are really smart, and I who I would totally want to work with on projects who end up failing like the admin exam or something because it's it's almost they're asking you. It's a lot of the questions are just trivial detail, like stuff that I wouldn't want someone to spend their time memorizing. But to pass this test, you got to memorize all this trivial crap. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't mean you're going to be a better consultant or a better admin. It's just, I don't know. Maybe there's probably not a better way. This is my problem with these certifications anyway. You can't. There's no way to really test how good someone's going to be at a certain job. It's I don't know. You can ask the multiple choice questions, sir. Sure, and that that will weed out. That will weed out a lot of people. I'm sure. But right. Some people are just really good at making t- taking tests, but that doesn't mean they're going to be good at what their job is or anything. So, but yeah, this is. I mean, people fail tests, and it's really nice to know what you need to work on if. And if you don't have that feedback, it's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? Yeah. You can't just take the entire body of knowledge of Salesforce and say, okay, I'm just going to study everything again. That's That will drive you absolutely insane, and you'll probably end up switching careers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's good. That was good news. Yeah. Um, I've got a uh, hmm, couple, couple of fairly extended things that I want to do. But before I get to that, I, I had an idea kind of dawned on me this week. I thought it would be a good little segment. Uh, we well, could that do explains a... the smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> I was wondering what was going yeah, on over there. I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> now, this is, I thought this would be a good idea for a recurring topic. and, and because It's just a quick topic. It's like a little recurring segment. And it's called John and Jeremy tell one unqualified good thing about Salesforce. Well, I do that all the time and trying to combat you. No, you don't. <laughs> So I'll, I'll, I don't, and I won't, if you can think of something fine, but if not, you can, well, I'll let you, uh, I'll pass on the first, on the first round, but. No, I, I can. Well, this, le- this, le- am I allowed and, to, and, is, is and this going to be, be a discussion, no, a topic, okay. or it has to be. Here's the rule. You can't qualify. You can't say, well, I kind of like this, but blah, blah, blah. It's just, no, this is something good about, because, and the reason I've thought about this, because we do often complain about Salesforce, I mean, reference the first. The, every part of this episode. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's things that we, I think maybe sometimes we forget about it. We take for granted, right? There's, there's great things about the platform and Salesforce and whatever. And this is just a, a good reminder that we need to talk about the good things too. But you can't qualify. You can't, you can't, can't be like, well, it's kind of good, but you know, other people do it better or whatever. It's just got to be, this is good. I really like it. Here's why I like it. And then that's it. Well, can it be technology related? The only, the only reason I say that is because I have actually something lined up to talk about this. And it's that I've been, I've been doing some Heroku development and I'm integrating with Salesforce, but there, there, there's a front-end part of it that's hosted by Heroku. And I found that, I was like, crap, I'm lazy. I miss, I miss, I, I miss my view state. I miss my, my security management. Oh, the, yeah, my my uh, app, yeah. once I uploaded Heroku, I, I got to freaking secure this now. So from, from that perspective, I really appreciate that, that when I develop something on Salesforce, I don't have to worry about security. It's it's within the context of someone's authenticated to Salesforce already, and in terms of managing state of my page that I've written the custom development on, mm-hmm. 
similar to JSP, similar to active, uh, um, ASP, you know, Visual Force manages the view state for me. So I can just create a class with a bunch of variables, public variables, and, and know that when the p- page posts back to me and I can run some other method, that data is there. Now, um, I'm on my own when it comes to Heroku and building all this from scratch. No, you don't have to use JSF. Use um, any, of, any of the well, other I'm, UI I'm, frameworks. I'm that, using that Node. Have, that I'm have... using Node. And I, it was a choice that I made to use Node. But the, and, and I could integrate another library that does all this for me. I could, I could you know, add it to my package JSON well, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, but, the, the, re- the reality is, is it's, the problem is not that um, you, don't, you're not, you don't have a UI, a front-end rendering framework that keeps state. The real problem is, is that's not how people build apps anymore, web apps anymore. And Visual Force is stuck in the past. People don't build stateful web apps like that anymore. I, I know, but it's a mindset that I got used to. I got used to it with ASP.net. I got well, used I to should, it with Visual Force. I should clarify Force. that. The state is kept on the client, and the client is using is communicating with APIs, right. stateless APIs. Well, it, it's sessionless APIs. It, it, the state it's, is right. in the page. Right exactly. now, I've moved to, to session management now, so the data that I want to keep track of and, and store is in, in the session. So now, now I have all these pages that I can navigate to, and I can swap in and out. And the the data that I that I need for those pages are in the session, which is fine. I'm fine with that, and I've, I've worked with it, and it's it's actually good. Um, but there about was like a server side session, yeah. The context, yeah. okay. But 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 it's uh, Node, yeah. Are you using Express? Express, but Express doesn't have session. Well, it, uh, Express does have session management, but there I'm using um, Jinx, Jink, uh, Link. Okay. Link. I'm using Link. Yeah. It's not a lean app. <laughs> but I do like lean over mean. Okay. Link yeah. being a memory database over document database. Gotcha. Um, but I'm using a subset of Link that augments the Express session management system. Is it implemented like as Express? What do they call it? Middleware? Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, so so it's doing that. And so I found I found a way to make this work for me that I'm happy with. Um but there was a point in time when I was figuring this out going, damn, I kind of missed that that was so easy. I didn't have to think about that. I just had to create a property in my class and run it. You know, so so if we're talking, you know, pros well, this and is, cons. You're making I, that, it really hard for me not to violate the rule about this. So <laughs> I'll just say, yes, thank but, you, Salesforce, for letting us continue to use this really outdated way of building apps. Thank you. <laughs> it's my rule. I can break it. All right. Um, so mine, mine is uh, Sockle date literals. Thank you for those. They're oh they're quite God. convenient. Working with dates is a pain. <laughs> it is, but there are things that Sockle makes better than SQL, and for those, I appreciate. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, okay. We're ready to uh, get into some other things. So yes. uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you haven't missed this because it's been all over the place. Uh, but the you know, big confab of uh, billionaires and super powerful elites uh, have gathered in uh, Davos again. It's that time of year, John, for the, what is it, the World Economic Forum? Yep. It's the New World Order elites. It's kind of like one of the, like the uh, Bilderbergs or whatever. So that's, that's this week. Um, I didn't see much come out of that. I mean, there was actually quite a bit of, you know, coverage of Davos in light of just political things that are happening in terms of Brexit and the kind of the populist uprising that led to the Trump, uh, uh, you know, that has led to the Trump presidency. 
because these <laughs> then you got these billionaires that are you know theoretically be on the opposite side of that thing I don't know but anyway there's been a ton of writing about that but I didn't see a whole lot about Salesforce but um, I did I got a couple of clips and then um, I've, I've made a related discovery that I'm kind of proud of myself on <laughs> I've done some <laughs> some investigation you connected the dots I did that? yeah all right, so let me see if I can get this play. One, oh, go ahead. Well, you know, I, I just wanted to talk about your overall strategy. I mean, you guys are in the forefront of these companies that are in the cloud. You're selling services, customers. I, I, should, I should probably set this up better. I actually forgot what it was. I needed to hear a little bit of it. <laughs> so uh, Benioff's being interviewed by, I think it was someone on CNBC, and they're asking just a bunch of stupid questions because that's, I mean, they're, you know, they're talking heads. Um, but she's asking him about, uh, well, uh, well, that's the context. Let me just back this up a little bit. About your overall strategy. I mean, you guys are in the forefront of these companies that are in the cloud. You're selling services. Customers can get in and get out anytime they want. And I, I think about Warren Buffett buying into IBM. The reason he bought that is because once they're in there, he thinks people can't get out. You know, the customer's kind of trapped with them. Okay, I want, I'm just going to replay this because I, I just want us to listen to her words here. Overall strategy. I mean, you guys are in the forefront of these companies that are in the cloud. You're selling services. Customers can get in and get out anytime they want. And I, I think about mm. Warren Buffett buying into IBM. The reason he bought that is because once they're in there, he thinks people can't get out. You know? Wow. So she's saying that Benioff... There's no way Buffett is the billionaire that he is with that mentality. No, and, and but, but listen to what she says about Salesforce, John. Listen. You guys are in the forefront of these companies that are in the cloud. You're selling services. Customers can get in and get out anytime. Now, let me ask you this, John. You've been working in the Salesforce space for about 10 years. And how many times have you heard me complain about <laughs> proprietary APIs? It's, it's a roach motel. You, you, you know, it's sticky, which is great for Salesforce. That's what you want as a business. You want a, you want a sticky product. So once people get into it, they're stuck, right? She's saying, oh, you, just, you can get in and get out. And, she, and she, she's contrasting that to IBM. And that's why Buffett went for IBM, because it's, it's not sticky. I'm like, wow, this is the, literally, I mean, the, the, the premise of this question is just dumb. It, it is. And it, I mean, you, you, you can kind of skate around it and say, oh, it's got this API. You can pull all your data. You can archive it. You can, you can move that data wherever you want, which that's true. But that ignores the, the IP that you built, the, the technology that you built into it, you know, that you're, has you're, to now be right. re, rewritten I mean, those are, for those are, your, those are your business processes. That is, that, is, that is valuable IP. Right, right. In some cases, maybe more valuable than your data. But I mean, the reality is once you invest that much into a system in terms of IP, regardless of what technology you choose, it's going to be difficult to change. Well, this is why I used to, I mean, I've always talked about, because I come from the world where people were always concerned about vendor locking. That's why you had standards bodies and, you know, the Java community process and JSRs and all this stuff. So that you would, the first thing you do is you create a, and I know there's criticism of that, whatever. Email John, but but you know you create a spec and and APIs and then all these different vendors Oracle and um, B B E A and all these IBM, then go implement these things and then you can choose who you want to go with and if if mm -hmm. you know you sign up for IBM and a couple years later they're jacking you around on on renewal fees then you can now it'll be some work and it's not perfect but you can very feasibly have start a project with an initiative to switch to um, one of the other vendors sure right. And, and I, my question, because we still, you know, uh, vendor lock-in, vendor lock-in, that was the thing that everybody avoided. I mean, you open up any of these CIO magazines or whatever, and it's all about, you know, avoiding vendor lock-in, whether it's... But I think that, I think when it came to vendor lock-in, they painted this picture that everything was hot swappable, that you could just kind of unplug this and plug this in, and you're ready to go. It created this illusion 
that it was it was just the thing you could hot swap yeah. back. Even hot swappable things aren't hot swappable. I tried to hot swap a hard drive once. It was supposedly hot swappable, and it sparked and <laughs> caught on fire. <laughs> anyway, but let's let's now switch to the part of this where we listen to Benioff's answer to the question of you know, how, how customers can so easily just get in and out of Salesforce. Because the funny thing is about that, she didn't realize it, but she's insulting his company. Yeah. That's kind of an insult. That, that would scare investors. That would scare him. You don't want people to be able to get out. Get in. Yeah, that's why you have dev orgs. It's so easy to get in. You put all the documentation out there, right? You want it to be easy for people to get in. But Well, I mean, you, you, the data is accessible, and that's what's important in, in terms of, of... What do you mean, that's what's important? That's well, not all that's important. It's that's, not that's what, a piece it, of it. It's not all that's important, but it's a big piece. You know, being able to take your data and move it somewhere else and and take it somewhere else. That's important. Right. Uh, but the logic and all that kind of stuff, you can rebuild. It's painful, yes. It's not it's not portable. You can rebuild that. But as long as you can get the data, you you have a plan. You ha- you have a starting point. You have a seed. Yeah. The the data is your seed. I'm just saying though that if but if it's all proprietary, you know, your your feasibility is way reduced. On, True. Yeah. Um, it, 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 you know that blanket statement ignores the, the difficulties of actually kind of moving from one system to another. But again, the data is the seed to me. Yep. The data is the seed. All right. Let's let's listen to his answer to this specific question. And they want, and I, I think about Warren Buffett buying into IBM. The reason he bought that is because once they're in there, he thinks people can't get out. You know, the customers kind of trapped with them. But what you've been doing and the growth you've experienced is the antithesis of that old line software sort of company. Well, I'll tell you why that is because you can look at these great companies who are here at this, you know, event in Davos and in could- Davos. Which, by the way, he'll have you know, he's been coming to since two thousand and one. Where is that? A great- it's in da- uh, Switzerland, right? Davos. Oh, isn't that where he couldn't get get to, get into that restaurant? Yeah, they wouldn't. Or yeah, <laughs> or they, was it they wouldn't serve him a mustard burger or something? I don't know. Well, he couldn't get in. He couldn't get a reservation. <laughs> That's right. He twi- he went to Twitter. Yeah. The out. You know. Don't you feel sorry for this billionaire who couldn't get a seat at a, a restaurant? <laughs> the injustice. <laughs> great bank like Bank of America or a great CPG company like Unilever. Um, it could be. Uh, a great media company, all of these companies have to connect with their customers in new ways. They're all going through incredible transformation and change, and that's when they bring in Salesforce. They bring in Salesforce because they're like, gee, we need to connect with this customer more deeply, more intimately in sales, in service, in marketing, in communities, in analytics, and uh, that's that's where we're going to come in and help them make that change. Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being he didn't address the question at all, 10 being he completely addressed it accurately, I want you to... a grade Mark's answer to that question. Uh, negative 10. <laughs> However, it was a great CEO answer. It was. No, he did his job. He did his job yep. well. Yep. Good job. He, he took a <laughs> bad question and went, you know what? I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. All right. <laughs> uh, so this is, okay, I've got a, I've got a topic and I'm getting, this is, I did some, uh, some, some journalistic investigation here and this is, I get my journalist credentials. Actually, I didn't. I just, look, I kind of lucked upon a, a, a Actually, kind of well. I got to give a hat tip to uh, Huffington Post. Uh, Jeremy, do we we fall into the category of fake news? (laughs) Most assuredly, we do. (laughs) Definitely, (laughs) we sure as hell aren't real news. So, Uh, no, they did. They did some homework. So, this is about uh, the revolving door. And this, this course, this is my commentary. The the revolving door continues. Salesforce has uh, is is now welcoming a new EVP of, of global strategic affairs. Um, and it's uh, a journalist. They're hiring another journalist. Oh, out of, but they're taking them away from journalism. 
didn't they lose a someone that they was... They lost a, their top PR person. Yeah. I can't remember her name, but yeah, she went to... Uh, I don't remember. Do you remember where she went? No. I saw the headline, but I didn't, I didn't go into it. I re- I don't, I can't, yeah, I can't remember her name, but I remember seeing... I recognize her face. I recognize her name too, but which I can't remember right now. But she was... Um, and she made the list of like the most powerful PR people in the country. Like the top 25 or whatever it was. Or maybe it was like top something powerful women PR. I think it was a woman thing, well, actually. Well, I, I can imagine. I mean, Salesforce being so marketing-centric, oh, yeah. I mean, that that's a lot of practice. You can... If you can do well there, you, you, you've you've made it. Yeah, I don't have any intel on that though. But anyway, no, they've they've hired a woman named Monica Langley, and she's been at Sells or she, no, she was at Wall Street Journal for twenty years. Wow. Now you've heard my theories on how uh, Benioff bet on Hillary Clinton publicly and and, and financially and everything, mm-hmm. and he bet on the wrong horse, right? And 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 whether or not there would be any. I mean, because we've seen Trump take to Twitter and he's, you know, going after companies. Some people say he's even picking winners and losers. And this is kind of dangerous, especially when you bet bet against this guy right now. I mean, is there going to be any backlash? Is he going to come after you? And so, you know, that's just a question I've had. Well, Politico described Monica Langley's relationship with the Trump family as friendly. Hmm. And it recalled criticism that the reporter drew from peers throughout last year that her reports were fawning over the presidential candidate. So now we have Salesforce, Mark Benioff, hiring a Trump person. Well, and again, there's more to it. But I'm just saying. But the is stage that here. just the media spinning, trying to create something out of nothing because someone said something positive about Trump, and and now all of a sudden they, they've they've become this Trump supporter because they said one thing oh, no, positive no, no, no. about Trump I, I'm years not, ago. I'm not saying that Salesforce is becoming a Trump supporter. No, no, I'm talking about the person because for some reason when it comes to Trump, the media likes to take these stories where at one point in time when he was just this reality TV star or this bill, this billionaire that was on Forbes or whoever, whatever list he was on for, for forever, they take that and go, oh, look, they said something positive once upon a time. They must be a Trump supporter. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, let me, let me read some other things here. So uh, as – and this is just some quotes – uh, as as Eric Trump uh, was set to begin his high-profile speech Wednesday night, he looked over and saw a fami- familiar face. Good luck, said Monica Langley, a Wall Street reporter who covers his father, Donald Trump. Monica, we love you, the younger Trump replied in an exchange captured by several political reporters standing nearby. Uh, Langley is a, quote, senior special writer at the journal, and she clarifies in her Twitter bio that she writes page one profiles of CEOs, billionaires, presidential candidates, and key news figures. While she was with Wall Street Journal, she published an in-depth profile of presidential-elect Donald Trump, which I'm guessing was a very flattering. Uh, I didn't read it, but I'm sure it's, it's probably very flattering. Um, she's been known for her glowing coverage of Donald Trump this campaign season, which has been returned with tremendous access, private plane rides, and at least according to Eric Trump, some love too. Hmm. And you can it says you can scroll her through her Twitter feed to see a flavor of this. I mean, that, I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're talking politics, that last part could be somewhat construed that way. But I think historically, I mean, Wall Street Journal is talking about finance and business and CEOs. And if you look at Trump, yeah, he's been successful. So, of course, there's going to be pieces written about him. The whole um, – what, what was his show called? The Apprentice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty successful and had, had quite a following. And, and he made a name for himself with – <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, he, uh, didn't, didn't they trademark that line or something? I don't know. Probably. Uh, so, anyways, I, I, you know, that seems natural for for a 
person who's who's in the financial markets writing about financial markets, they would do a piece on Trump. So that makes sense. Oh, but, it's not a piece. I mean, lot lots of favorable coverage. Where in a in a time where from most mainstream media, he's getting very unfavorable coverage. Yeah. So anyway, this is just this is well. I mean, that that's just to Salesforce's credit, right? I mean, I, they're, I t- they're not they're not picking winners and losers no. based on politics. So I mean, yeah. So you're you're forcing me to show my hand here. <laughs> I think this is a smart move. I think they very much needed to do this, right? T- to get a someone who's very friendly with the current presidential administration for your ten billion dollar company. Yes, very smart. Sure, why not? Um. So, so Benioff tweeted out. He says, "Welcome to Salesforce, Monica Langley. We are so excited to have you." On our team. We, we didn't lo- say that right. How, how was I supposed to say it? We are so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do very good, Benny. We are so excited to have you on our team. We, <laughs> we love your wisdom, wit, and desire to make the world better. <clears throat> I've got more interesting facts. Uh, they, they just keep coming. I mean, I, as I'm researching this, I, I just keep <laughs> discovering this stuff. So she's the one that broke the Salesforce buying Twitter story, which killed Salesforce's stock. Wow. I know. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> well, you know what? It's amazing what happens when you just Google something. That's, you, you that's even smarter of Salesforce going, you know what? This, this woman tanked us. Let's get her on our side and see how she does. <laughs> yeah, so she had... Okay. Um, <clears throat> she had reportedly considering uh, issuing... Oh, no, Salesforce... Uh, until October, Salesforce, you know, was considering issuing a bid to, to acquire Twitter, uh, but then Fidelity, Fidelity Management questioned the move. Some speculate that Salesforce might have plans to engage in a deal large enough to require approval from federal regulators, and having a Trump insider might help propel the company over regulatory hurdles. It, it sounds like Salesforce found a really good win there. there. There is another twist to this, which is apparently this woman, Monica Langley, has a superpower. And it's well known. Is it DevOps? It's w- <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, you get a, let's see. <laughs> what do I get? You, get? you get one of these. Sorry, there's like a three second delay on Finder to actually play something when you do the preview <laughs> thing. <clears throat> uh, no, this is well known amongst, uh, you know, the journalistic circles. There's something known as the Monica Langley curse. And I found an article about it from last October. Because uh, again, she, you know how she talked about in her in her bio, it says how she writes these um, page one bios of CEOs, billionaires, and famous people. Right? <clears throat> well, apparently, according to this, a Langley profile has often come with something reminiscent of the curse of the Sports Illustrated cover, which is a reference to one of the worst things that can happen to you is to be covered to be a, to make the cover of Sports Illustrated because it seems like bad things happen to people after they get on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Right. Um, just as terrible things have befallen figures lucky enough to have graced the cover of Sports Illustrated, let's take a look at what has happened to the, some of the, uh, the subjects of some of Langley's most ambitious profiles. So there's this one, uh, she wrote a book in 2003, Tearing Down Walls, How Sandy Whale Fought His Way to the Top of the Financial World and Nearly Lost It All, <clears throat> which is, uh, according to this, a hagiography of Citigroup's whale, this guy whale. Anyway, long story short, uh, he's now widely credited as bearing some of the greatest responsibility for creating the conditions that led to the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, then there was the major December 2014 profile of Roger Goodell seeks uh, to pass right wrongs, or, or to right to pass wrongs. Um, and then this person says that one doesn't really need commentary. I don't actually know enough about Roger Goodell for that, but 
And then and then it says we can probably move right past the flattering look at the role of Corey Lewandowski. Do you know who that is? No. He was I think he was one of Trump's earlier um campaign managers. And he, you know, there was a lot of questions, accusations about him, but then there was the thing where he like grabbed that one reporter's arm, that woman, but and, and pulled her away and she had bruises and filed charges. Oh and wow. People got fired from news organizations and stuff over this and yeah. So again, you know, she writes about you, and then bad things end up end up happening to you. But then, okay, so uh, moving on, let's let's pause on the Target chief executive. And Target's a big retailer in the United States. Um, their CEO, Greg Steinhall, Stein Steinhoffel, uh, was the subject of a, of one of her flattering profiles in 2014 about effective handling of the company's data breach. But a month later, Target had to pay a 10 million dollar class action lawsuit. And about six weeks after that, he got he got canned. It just goes on and on but, and on. But is that indicative of the unicorn tech industry? Oh, because she you you said she wrote a piece on Trump and and Trump was president. Damn it! Well, that's true. But the the final chapter in that book hasn't been written yet. That's true. <laughs> but but here's what even another tie back to Salesforce that blew my mind. I'm like this this the fact that this woman keeps coming up and she and that she gets tied but she keeps getting tied back. Okay. Um. There's uh, this guy, Ack, uh, Ackman, I guess, who was a big investor in this company, Valiant. And they're, a, I think they're, a, um, they're a pharma, like a pharmaceutical company. And long story short, their stock, so she did the story on him, and he's a, let's see, oh, yeah, he, he's an activist investor, Bill Ackman. And he ended up losing $2 billion with his hedge fund due to Valiant, this pharmaceutical manufacturer. Their share price went from $300, now it's, according to when this article was written, it was, went to, down to $32. Ouch. So he lost like a couple billion dollars on this. Yeah. Valiant <clears throat> is also often mentioned in the same breath as Salesforce because they both have been under scrutiny for their non-GAAP reporting of numbers. And turns out, though, that uh, the SEC really went after Valiant. And that's one reason why their stock price collapsed. Mm. But that's when there was a there and there was there was uh, and there's, I think there still is a well, lot of the, the, a the lot SEC of is still trying to trying to they of, are they yeah. are and I don't think necessarily I mean I'm not saying that Salesforce is doing anything wrong necessarily or, or this is going to happen to them, but they they you know when you talk about these tech companies that that are doing a lot of this non-gap I mean I'm, like they're focusing everything on non-gap I mean Salesforce is definitely at the you know they're in that group. Well, well so Salesforce like, could use Trump's line and that I did everything that's acceptable within the law. <laughs> but anyway, I just thought that was an, another interesting tie into Salesforce. Yeah. But uh, so, so they've hired this, you know, Monica Langley. She has the ability to, well, first of all, she's super powerful. She's in with the Trumps and she has this black magic power to cause terrible things to happen to people. <laughs> and, and here's, here's, here's the conclusion here. The, there's the cherry on the top. Benioff was asked um, about and this is a Davos, he's asked about, you know, are you concerned with what Trump's doing? That he might come after your company. Okay. So let's listen to what Benoff had to say about that. But in this environment, it's going to be tougher to do that. You could find yourself in the crosshairs of a president who might send out a tweet and say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Your company is a pile of junk, as he has done to other CEOs and other companies. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, but... Mike Trump. <laughs> well, I don't. But this, this is the confidence. I don't think that's not going to happen. And he knows it's not going to happen. Well, I, I don't think... Because he's got, he's got, uh, he's got think, this, powerful, this powerful person now. For some reason, I don't think the 
tech industry is on Trump's radar for some reason. It, it you know, the 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 kind of blue collar stuff, you know, GM, the car manufacturers, those kind of things that, you know. Oh, you he's know, gone after Amazon. That's that's on his target. Amazon's unique because of so many distribution centers, and I, I think that kind of crosses over into blue collar. It, for it some might. reason, the things he's attacked have been kind of the the, the industries that have a fair amount of blue collar or or some kind of unionization along those lines where there, there's tremendous amount of politics involved. He doesn't seem to gone, gone after the tech industry. Well, I say I say Amazon. <clears throat> it may be more accurate to say Jeff Bezos because Bezos owns Washington Post now. Oh well, <laughs> just another reason to go after Amazon. <laughs> Anyway, this this I find this Monica Langley character fascinating, and and we've got to stay on top of her. And, well, no, that's not a good for, that, choice that's of words. Not a good phrasing. We need to stay. Um, <laughs> uh, we need to follow her her work. <laughs> uh, foot and mouth. Um, <laughs> I, I had more information on this analyst summit. You remember the analyst summit that we talk about? This uh, that is, is odd. Was there another one or well, no? The same I just I, I found a new article. Not I, I, I don't know if it's new or if I just. You know, in my searches, I, I found it this week. Um, but it's by, you may know this guy. He's a fellow uh, MVP. His name is Daniel Peter or Daniel Petter. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I know people with that last name. It was uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. He's a Salesforce MVP and lead applications engineer at Canandy. You ever heard of Canandy? No. I, I like that name. It's like uh, Dandy Canandy. Canandy. Or maybe, I don't know if that's how you say it. Anyway. Uh, let's see. I just picked some, it's actually a fairly long article and it was, you know, this is interesting because this is, this is a Salesforce MVP that writes for Forbes. And although, um, this was, this was interesting and there's actually far more meat on this bone than most stuff that's written for Forbes. We still ha always have to give our disclaimer. Any monkey with, with a set of lipstick on their pig <laughs> lips can write for Forbes. I'm going to write for Forbes. Well, get your lipstick out. <laughs> my, my resolution is I'm going to write an article for Forbes this year at some point. All right, so he writes, uh, improving efficiency isn't enough anymore. Salesforce is now digitally transforming businesses to deliver the next amazing customer experience paradigm before their competitors do. Oh, but, my God, no, this, I'm not writing for Forbes. This is, this if, that's, is, if that's what gets you into Forbes, I'm not writing that. This reminds me of the uh, in, uh, innovate the way you transform, or is it transform the way you innovate? That was just way too many buzzwords. <laughs> I know. You know what? Yeah. If I wanted to write for Forbes, I could, because all I have to do is like list every buzzword known in the title, and then I win. All right. Well, I just want to, he, he's got some more stuff here. I want to get through some of this. He says uh, he got an, they got an IoT update. So the IoT cloud has been eclipsed a bit by the shadow of Einstein lately. Woodson Martin, EVP and GM of uh, the IoT cloud, which I guess still exists at Salesforce, uh, explained where IoT is right now. He shared some customer success stories, of course, including Schneider, that's one of their go-tos, KUKA, and MAN. MAN. Okay. IoT is a key enabler of customer success. And in case you didn't know this, IoT is a key enabler of customer success, and it is driving adoption of all the other clouds. Do you believe that? The yeah, IoT is driving adoption of their other well, clouds? Well, my hairbrush has to be on the internet. That's true. So it can tell me that That's my true. hair sucks. Yeah, you got me on that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. By the way, 40-year-old uh, guy, your hair is a little bit thinner than it was yesterday. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it might be time to start shaving it. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't a cloud join, people... Join, join Bald Force. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it isn't a cloud people seek out on its own as... Well, then how is it driving other clouds? As much as it is enabling a, enabling a piece of the stack. The, the, the metaphors, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm dying, to, I'm a death of metaphors here. Uh, it is also helping to close some very large deals. Partnerships with other 
providers like AWS are important to help funnel out the device or funnel all that device data into the IoT cloud. Uh, this just rings of the same kind of I feel like not completely honest things we've been hearing about IoT cloud since you know for the past two years. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, a brand, this is this is more interesting, more more applicable to our our interests. A brand new concept was mentioned by our friend Adam Seligman. Uh, he is the what is Adam Seligman, John? Is the uh, EVP of GM and and App Cloud? Hi, everybody. Uh, and Adrian Kunzel, who's who is the SVP of Product Development Salesforce. Uh, but the, the, their new concept is meta tenancy. Meta tenancy. <laughs> Ooh, I like that word. It sounds so awesome. <laughs> meta tenancy. Well, I mean, any guesses of what that is? I have no idea, but more, it sounds cool. I'm gonna use it in my next meeting. BS speak. Yeah, we're, we're this is Salesforce, and it's meta tenancy. <laughs> I'm awesome. Yeah, I'm an architect. That'll help close some deals. Believe what I say. Drop, drop that, drop that word in every now and then. Because I know the word meta tenancy. Like, oh, this, this John guy knows what he's talking about. We better sign on the dotted line. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so so Daniel uh, says googling meta tenancy didn't return anything. Surprise. Uh, so it's it's probably a phrase that Salesforce uh, have, has coined. A brief dish, definition they gave was that was uh, get this. The definition of meta inter, uh, what was it? Meta tenancy is. Secure enterprise service composition. Ooh. That, <laughs> Ooh. That, that might be even better. I'm about to use that one too. Meta like tenancy. Like you're getting a little hot and bothered out there, over Ooh. there, John. Ooh. These words. Ooh, doggy. I'm going to need a moment here. Okay. Can you just turn around? <laughs> oh, God. These words, man. I'll just raise my monitor up some. It is a one to two, or sorry, one to three year effort that will help to stitch together. More, more metaphors here. All the B2B and B2C use cases between the various clouds. I guess we have a problem with our, our B2B and our B2C is not stitched stop, together. Stop. It's not stitched, stop. John. B2C, you, you said B2C. <laughs> I mean, whew. <laughs> it, it, is that hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> it's, <sighs> it's hot in here, actually. It decomposes the notion of the Salesforce. Now, that's actually kind of interesting. It decomposes the notion of a Salesforce org, which was the original monolithic container for all applications. Uh, this new thing... We'll use more of a service slash microservice. Got to get that buzzword in there. Architecture. Ooh, microservices. Yep. Hitting ding, all ding, my ding. buttons. Hitting all my buttons. <laughs> the first area that they are addressing is identity. Okay. The details are lacking on what this will look like, but it sounds like they are transforming their architecture oh to better serve modern enterprise needs. <laughs> this thing was SEO'd to the uh, top. I, I know. <laughs> Every ounce of it is just SEO juice. Uh, this, this, this is juicy. Yeah. <laughs> when I talk about juicy, this is SEO juicy. Yeah. Better take a drink of your, your juicy IPA. All right, here, we got some more BS on Ignite. Do you remember Ignite? Actually, I found a whole a separate article on Ignite. I'll have to dig that up for next week, maybe. Um, I'm sure people are going to be chomping at the bit for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call a tease in the business. Uh, one of the highlights of the event was a thorough explanation of the Ignite program. Uh, Peter Doolin, who's the EVP of Digital Transformation and Innovation at Salesforce, did a superb job of explaining this. Much of this was under NDA, but there's a great article on Ignite on Salesforce's blog. It helped to clarify why Salesforce purchased Gravity Tank. Um, they're an innovation consultancy, consultancy that had the assets needed to help Salesforce transform their customers. Wow. So first of all, I'm assuming assets, wow. they're referring to people as assets. Well, they got transformers their own, too. Their own. I know. And yeah, and Salesforce is going to transform customers. I hope they don't transform me. I know. We don't have a transformer bit. We need a transformer bit. I know. The 80s style, not the new style, the, trans the 80s style. 
if Salesforce helps their customers transform into successful new businesses, these customers no doubt buy more of the Salesforce platform in the process. A great example of a win-win. You got to get win-win in. But is that true? It, well, this says Ignite looks like it will be Salesforce's secret weapon to get to $10 billion in revenue and beyond. You, you, you didn't know this. It's Ignite that's going to get them there. <laughs> if your customers won't buy, then transform them into someone who will buy. Yeah, I guess so. I have, I have a final clip here. What was this? Hang on. And finally, Mark, I know you don't see eye to eye with Donald Trump on everything. Probably I think that's fair to say. If he reached out to you and asked you to work with him, would you be interested in doing that? Well, I, you know, I have said I'm uh, going forward with an open mind and an open heart, and I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing uh, uh, great progress for our country and our industry. And, you know, one thing I certainly hope that he does is take a good hard look at how all of our agencies operate. And I know that they're still using a lot of on-premise software there in the government. I mm. hope they'll be looking to move to the cloud and to uh, some of these next generation solutions. And I bet Monica Langley can help grease those skids. Oh, I'm sure. That I, companies like Salesforce <laughs> and others offer that help them to lower costs and make things easier for all the citizens of the United States. So possibly an opportunity for the government and possibly an opportunity for Salesforce. Well, every administration, I think, you know, uh, has said they want to revitalize how we run the government. And I hope that uh, they're successful in doing that. I, Mark Benioff. Th this... Um Monica Langley acquisition here. I feel like this is a redo when they when they hired um, Vivek Kundra, who was like in the couple of first years of the Obama administration was like a CTO or CIO or something like that. Huh. And he basically, I think he got fired. He was he's just a complete buffoon. This guy, and I think he still works at Salesforce. He really got shuffled down. I mean, they I think they send him out of the country now. He's like he he just he's off. He goes and does I don't know they. I don't know what he does. Maybe his contract's expired. He's gone. But that was a big deal when they hired him. Well, I, he was going to help, you know, bring all this government business. And but he he's a supreme BSer. Well, but it didn't it didn't work out. He's it, just he it, turns out that he just wasn't powerful. He he shouldn't have never even had that job in the government. Mm. And he, I don't know how he weaseled his way into it. But I think then Salesforce learned that this guy has no power. He has no experience. But. I think they're making it up for it with uh, Monica Langley. Well, I, I certainly believe that the government is an untapped market in, in terms of how they run things. They're, they're still very much on-premise. They're still yeah. very much spreadsheet-driven and things like that. I mean... Yeah, although, I, I mean, mean you know, the government, I mean, it's famous for having, like, some of the biggest contracts with, like, Oracle and IBM and, and you know... It, it, it's it's kind of tough when, it, when, you, when you talk about government in terms of getting your foot in the door, but once you get your foot in the door, it's almost kind of this cash cow where you can actually start doing things. And if, if you're a modern technology company, you can get in. I say more power to you because I, I think if anything needs updating, it's the government in terms of efficiency. I think that's always the case. That won't ever change, will it? Uh, true, but they seem slower than anybody to, to move forward. I, I, just, I, I, I struggle with sometimes the interactions that I have with different government agencies like the IRS and things like that where you just, you're like having to fax stuff. And I'm like, what? right. The hell! I think you still have to fax to cancel your Salesforce service. <laughs> Do you? I think so. <laughs> Maybe that you have to go out with dinner with someone. What's what would be more painful? You have to buy them the steak uh, yeah, to oh, get yeah. out of no, Salesforce. Yeah, this time you're buying. Yeah, this you time want... you're buying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, we have we have a few questions. Uh, I don't, we're we're not doing well on time. No, we're not. Yeah, we're about two hours in. Maybe we'll save those. 
Yeah, we'll save them. Okay. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. I'm <laughs> Go home for dinner. All right, John. What? Any, anything else? Any closing thoughts? Anything else you wanted to squeeze in? Yeah, you, you took all my stuff. Know, you took was, all the time. You, you, you got to vacuum of time. I have a. I'm. I have a. We do a show here, and I'm. And I have a phobia of dead air. So you just have to. It has to be conversational. You got to jump in. Well, and to that, I say, good day, sir. <laughs> you lose. You get nothing. Good day, sir. Well, I don't think that's going to happen.